Exodus 24, 1 through 8. Um, then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Priscilla. Let's... Yeah, let's be seated, and, and I'll pray for us. Just join me in prayer. Holy Spirit, you, would you come? You are good. Yeah, in Paul's, in Paul's letter to Rome, he said that the Holy Spirit pours out the Father's love into our hearts. So come and do that right now. As we breathe in the presence of one another and you, God, would you pour the Father's love into our hearts? May we see Jesus clearly as he is and respond rightly as you invite us to. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, good morning again. Just to get right into it, you guys, last Sunday we started a new series about the Bible. So maybe you're thinking, yeah, we're in church. We always talk about the Bible. But this is a specific series about what the Bible is and its origin story, and why Christians are this weird people on earth who actually submit to this library of documents, okay? So this is the title of the series, God Breathed. Why? That's the, that's the word Paul uses to describe the scriptures. They're uniquely breathed by God, and we'll get into what that means in future weeks. But I just, I just want to start uh, by reminding you, last week was our intro teaching and we started in the right place, I think. We started with Jesus. So any conversation about the Bible should start with Jesus. <laughs> uh, why? Because Jesus viewed the Bible a certain way. And followers of Jesus are people who take Jesus' view of the Bible. Does that make sense? Uh, so, so we, as Christians, humbly say Jesus is our Lord, so we want to think like him and move toward the world and move toward one another and move toward the Bible like him. So, like Andrew Wilson said, I, this quote was last week, I'm going to bring it up in future weeks, it's amazing, take it home with you, this one is good to memorize or take a picture of. Andrew says, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible, I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him, and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks, acts as if the Bible's trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. So that's so good, you guys. That, that framework is so good. And so the question today, part two, where do we go from here? 
Today we're asking the question, okay, that's how you trust it, but why submit to it? That's weird. <laughs> like, think about that. Like, how, how, how are we to think of ourselves as a people in 2023 who submit to 2,000, 3,000-year-old documents? That's just weird. Like, how many people do you know other than Christians that do that? Uh, so... And, and wrapped up in that question is, what's the Bible's origin story? Because that's going to have a say in whether we trust our lives to it, right? Um, and that's, let's face it, that's the question today. Uh, it's all about this idea of authority. When we talk about submitting an authority, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We've seen a lot of authority abusers. And so we should rightfully be suspicious of authority. And that's all of cultures looking in on the church, going, how are you guys not a cult? <laughs> like, it's weird. And so it's this question of biblical authority that's really at the heart of this. Because many people are interested in Jesus, but when it comes to the Bible, people are like, ah, that's great that you follow Jesus and that works for you. But you really, like, you want to put yourself under this ancient text as a source of divine guidance and authority over, like, how you use your body? Like, seriously? Have you ever heard this pushback from people? Maybe you're in the room and you're like, I kind of resonate with that pushback. It's weird to you, maybe. And that's very common today. I mean, just talk. If you don't hear that, I, am, I encourage you. Like, maybe talk to your coworkers who are not part of the church. Talk to your neighbors and ask them, hey, I'm a Christian. I submit to the Bible. Like, what does that make you feel? <laughs> like, how, like, how do you think about me when I say that to you? Just for some self-awareness, I would encourage that uh, because we, and then, listen, and then just listen. Don't defend yourself. Just listen to how they feel uh, because Christians do this weird thing called submitting to ancient books. Now, by the way, it's worth pointing out Christians are one-third of the globe. So 2.56 billion people who claim that the Bible is authoritative in some way. Uh, so we're not like super, super rare. And then if you add Islam and Judaism, it gets close to 50% of the planet who, who submits to some kind of ancient texts. So we're not weird by global standards, but when we live in the West, and largely Western, even, not even evangelical, secular America, in a this is a bubble, really, a minority bubble, we can be made to feel like we're weirdos, which is understandable. So let's face it. Uh, if you don't have these conversations with your coworkers or your hairstylist, simply to remind yourself of how odd it is that you hold these beliefs, I highly recommend you do. I highly recommend. So uh, this is what we're talking about today. We want to talk about like the, the Bible's authority, why we submit to it, which is directly connected to its origin story. Because as we saw last week, what it means to follow Jesus is inseparable from fostering a relationship with this library of texts, the scriptures. By the way, that's what the Bible is. It's not a book. It's a library. And you approach it as a library. There's different genres. And you read them differently uh, based on the genre that they are. And we'll get into that later. So just to kick off the first chunk of this, of this teaching, I just want to give you some of my personal journey towards awakening to the power and beauty of the scriptures. Um, my journey in church and stuff. And then, and then we'll come to the Exodus text that Priscilla read. So here we go. My own story. I grew up right here, like SoCal, born and raised. Uh, I was born, actually, San Diego, Paradise Valley Hospital, Paradise Hills, very close to here. 
And, and, uh, and then grade school, K through nine, I was in Orange County, and we were part of a church. My, my dad was a musician, worship pastor, six days a week at church kind of life. And so we were part of a church that was super into the Bible. Uh, have you seen the movie, like, Jesus Revolution? Have you seen that? Okay, Jesus Revolution. If you haven't seen it, I think it's, like, even, it's, like, up on, net, like, like, high rated on Netflix now or whatever. But, uh, you know, you know, if you've seen it, you know the big tent in that story? So that, with all the hippies and Lonnie Frisbee and Chuck Smith, Kelsey Grammer from wherever, Cheers, whatever, I don't know what, no, Frazier, that's what it was. So Frazier is my pastor. That was crazy. He played my pastor. But uh, that's the church I grew up in. I, I grew up in that actual property, like the field that tent was on. Uh, that was the elementary school soccer field and my, and my baseball field and my PE and my Sunday night church class and the building next to it was my karate class and my basketball camp and my church. It was the bubble. I grew up in the bubble, the mega church. And, and so the movie, Jesus Revolution, takes place in the 70s. And then in the late 70s, they put the tent away, threw up a building, and that was where I went to school and church and everything else in my life. And the idea was like, I, I mean, one of the things I'm most thankful for is for the emphasis on reading your Bible every day. Like that was, that was seen as everything back then. Almost as if to say, as long as you're reading your Bible, Every morning, you're okay with God and everything else will work. That was kind of, just read your Bible. That's the best thing you can do. And listen, that's fantastic. I actually want to emphasize that. I'm so thankful for that rhythm of daily scripture reading that was instilled in me. I mean, how can you knock that? I mean, that's what we're doing together as a church with our bread readings, isn't it? Just getting the Bible into our souls. So I grew up in this Bible-soaked culture, but it wasn't until my 20s when I realized something. Through reading and studying the scriptures, I realized that the whole world didn't revolve around me and my personal Bible time. God's mission for the universe was bigger than just getting Christians to read their Bibles earlier and earlier in the morning. <laughs> I learned this from reading the Bible. So through reading and studying the Bible, I discovered there's more significant going on, something bigger than just me and my Bible. And it was... God is reshaping the whole world around Jesus. Like the kingdom of God is coming. It's permeating the universe. And I want to be part of this. The kingdom of Jesus. In order to do this, if I want to be part of this, I need to give my life to following this person. In, or in Jesus' words, I needed to become one of his apprentices. That's the word Jesus used. We translate it disciple. Apprentice is the same word. So just pause my story now, and just a metaphor for understanding apprentice, Star Wars. So Star Wars provides a perfect metaphor for everything in life, including this. So uh, let's say I spend tons of money and time buying and watching Star Wars movies. Uh, every week, I get good. I make sure I keep up on my visits to Disney and, and the just Star Wars land, and I get good at quoting movies and identifying quotes in common culture from Star Wars, I get good at it. And I stand in line for the midnight showing of every new canon film, lightsaber in hand, hooded. So question, does all of that mean I'm on the path to becoming a Jedi? No, why? 
There's, did you know there's actually a real Jedi order you can join? Like it's a registered religion in the UK. You can, and there's a Jedi, there's a temple of the Jedi order in Texas you can become a member of, and you could give your life to this community based on the force and be part of lightsaber dances. It's a thing. So you can Google it. So what am I saying? No matter how much money I spend on movies and memorizing Yoda and Luke and Qui-Gon quotes, I will never become a Jedi until I become a disciple in the Jedi community. Until then, I'll just be a fan. I won't be more than a fan. You can see where I'm going with this, right? It doesn't matter if I quote it every day or I read it every morning. Without becoming a disciple, I'm just a fan. And when it comes to Star Wars, that's fine with me. I'm fine just being a fan. If you're a normal person, you're fine just being a Star Wars fan. But if I consider myself a Christian, I'm not fine being just a Jesus fan. And this is where we're headed here. By definition, a Christian is not just someone who reads and quotes the Bible and Jesus or whatever, but someone who practices the way of Jesus of Nazareth with their whole life. In other words, before we were called Christians, we were called disciples. Jesus never called his followers Christians. He called them apprentices. We are people who give our lives to mastering the way of Jesus. Okay, back to my story now. So I'm growing up into an apprentice, Bible church, and now I'm working at a church in my early 20s, and I'm realizing, oh my gosh, I really have to do this thing. Like, I have to read the Bible and really know it backwards and forwards, not because when I read it in the morning, I magically get more growth. Like, I thought if I read the Bible, I would just magically get everything I need from God. It was almost like a magic book. No, I read it backwards and forwards to understand the story of it because I'm an apprentice of an ancient Jewish rabbi named Jesus who also happened to be God, and he knew the scriptures backwards and forwards, and he loved them, and he said, hey, world, this whole thing points to me, so I'm going to read this Bible. And so now I'm in my mid-20s, and it's like I'm studying the Bible for the first time. All kinds of new questions. I've been memorizing it since I was four years old, and now I'm in my mid-20s, 20 years later, with new questions about very familiar texts. You ever had that experience? It's crazy to, like, relearn new reasons for doing old things. And I had so, like, why is, this was a hard one. Why is there a talking snake on page three? Really, like, what, how did he get in? And is it really a snake? Or is it a metaphor? And I just went in with all my mental power that I could. And then all the weird blood sacrifices in the Bible and the horrible violent wars that God seems to command. I'm like, this is, this is the Bible, this strange world, foreign country. I thought it was American or something. It's not. It is from a foreign country in another continent, another, another millennium. And it's hitting me that way. So when I really started studying it, I realized there are stories and pieces of the Bible that actually re repulsed me. Ancient, dysfunctional, polygamist, chauvinistic, misogynistic families. I'm like, I, I don't want to be like these people. But the stories also began to amaze me because you know what happened every time in all the gross stories the God of those stories stayed committed to those gross people. <laughs> he kept committing himself to these kinds of failures. 
He would work with them to bring about healing and redemption. And then it turns out it's one big arc pointing to this person, Jesus. Oh, I like Jesus. Everybody does. And this whole thing's arcing to him. You guys, this is the Bible. And it's overwhelming in its beauty and its complexity and its difficulty. And that's where my fascination flowed from. And you guys, it's still flowing. I'm still just, I just, well, just wells of untapped questions that I have uh, about the Bible. And, and to make a long story short, I did what all recovering pastor's kids do when they rediscover Jesus. I signed up for Greek and Hebrew classes and invested years of studying the Bible and theology in grad school. So I finished my Master's of Divinity 2018, and I'm still, five years after getting a master's degree in this stuff, I'm still reeling at everything the Bible is trying to tell me about this person, Jesus. And so here's where we find ourselves today. We're forced to ponder the strangeness of the idea that we're this community that brings ourselves under the authority of something like the Bible, and we're doing it by looking at the origin story. So let's, push, let's put the issue on the table, way better than me trying to explain how the Bible was made. Thankfully, our, our friends up at the Bible Project, Tim, who leads it, he's an f- acquaintance of mine for years, they put together this five-minute video all about how the Bible came to us. What is it? So here's, here's from the Bible Project. The Bible, it's one of the most influential books in human history. It explores the big questions of why we exist. It's inspired many people to do amazing things. And confused many others. And you've probably got one sitting around somewhere. So, what is the Bible actually? Well, the Bible is a small library of books that all emerged out of the history of the people of ancient Israel. And in one sense, they were just like any other ancient civilization. But among them were a long line of individuals called prophets. And they viewed Israel's story as anything but ordinary. They saw it as a central part of what God was doing for all humanity. And these prophets were literary geniuses. Really? Yeah, they expertly crafted the Hebrew language to write epic narratives, very sophisticated poetry. They were masters of metaphor and storytelling, and they leveraged all of this to explore life's most complicated questions about death and life and the human struggle. So there's a lot of different authors writing this book. Yeah, and these texts were produced over a thousand year period, starting with Israel's origins in Egypt, then leading up to their kingdom with their first temple. But eventually they were conquered by the Babylonians who took them away into exile. Then, at a crucial moment in their history, many Israelites returned to their land. They built a second temple, they reformed their identity, and this is when the Jewish scriptures began to be formed into the shape that we have them today. Okay, the Jewish Bible, what's in it? Well, in Hebrew, it's called by an acronym, Tanakh. The T stands for Torah, sometimes called the Law. That's Israel's five book foundation story. The N stands for Nevi'im, the Hebrew word for prophets. And this section consists of the historical books that tell Israel's story from the prophet's point of view. Then you get the poetic books of the prophets themselves. The K stands for Ketavim, the Hebrew word for writings. This is a diverse collection of poetic books, wisdom books, and more narrative. And the Jewish people believe that through all of these literary works, God speaks to his people. Now, there were other Jewish writings being produced 
during this second temple period as well. Yeah, a really diverse group of texts. And these two were highly valued in Jewish communities. And there was debate from ancient times about whether or not some of these should be considered part of their scriptures. So this is a lot of different writings over a long period of time. Why did they put them all together like this? Well, altogether, these texts tell an epic story about how God is working through these people to bring order and beauty out of the chaos of our world. And it all builds up to a hope for a new leader who would come and renew all creation. And then the Tanakh concludes, and this leader never comes. So it's an expertly crafted work, but it's missing an ending? That's exactly right. Now, a few centuries later, a Jewish prophet comes onto the scene named Jesus of Nazareth. He claimed he was carrying the Tanakh story forward. Yeah, so Jesus did a bunch of cool stuff was killed, but his followers claimed he was alive from the dead. Yeah, they said that Jesus was that long-awaited leader who would restore the world. And so his earliest followers, called apostles, they composed new literary works about the story of Jesus. They called these good news or the gospel. They formed an account called Acts about the spread of the Jesus movement outside of Israel. And then they circulated letters to different Jesus communities all around the ancient world. And they saw these writings as part of the scripture. Yeah, the apostles wrote all of this as the fulfillment of that epic story found in the Tanakh. And they were continuing the literary genius of the Jewish tradition. They also believed that God was speaking to his people through these texts alongside the scriptures of Israel. So that's the Old and New Testament. But what did the early Christians think of the other Second Temple literature? Well, different groups had different views about some of these books, but we know they read them and valued these texts because they passed them along with the Jewish scriptures. Okay, so we've got the Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures. We got these other Second Temple period works. Then the writing of the apostles about Jesus. And that's a lot of literature, so what's in my Bible? So the Christian movement has taken different forms over 2,000 years, and from the beginning, all Christians recognized the Tanakh and the New Testament as scripture. And for centuries, much of the Second Temple literature was read as part of the biblical tradition. The Catholic Church eventually made it official and called some of the books from this collection the Deuterocanonical books. Some Orthodox churches used even more books from this Second Temple literature. And then in the 1500s, during the Reformation, Protestant Christians wanted to go back to the oldest writings of the prophets and apostles, so they accepted only the Old and New Testaments. Okay, I think I got it. But how does a collection of books produced over a thousand years by all these different authors tell one unified story? Yeah, that's the question we'll address in our next video. You guys, that is a short history of the Bible. And, and after studying this thing pretty much my whole life, I've never been more amazed at it. So the Hebrew scriptures of Israel, Jesus's Bible, the Old Testament, come on, that's crazy. We get to read the Bible that shaped Jesus. And then he commissioned the apostles' teachings, and that's our New Testament. I mean, come on, these are the most beautiful works of literature that the Holy Spirit has now chosen to uniquely speak through. And, and this is starting to get to our question, why would I accept these texts as a divine guide over my life and authority? That's a question. And so the full answer to this question is wrapped up in the origin story. And so here it is, a uh, little trivia. Does anyone know the first place in the Bible where the writing of the Bible was first mentioned. It's, kind of, it's definitely a deep cut, all right? If anyone knows. So this is the Bible's origin story. We're, we're looking at the origin story because that's going to really inform why do we submit to this?
Where did it even come from? We go to the beginning of its formation, and, and it's, it's not Genesis. It's actually Exodus chapter 17. It's a story that's easy to miss. You know the Moses story. It's from the Moses story, but it's such a small part, it never makes the movies, so no one knows about it. Uh, so the people have been rescued out of slavery. They come through the Red Sea, and they're like, all right, we're a country of ex-slaves now. We're this new nation. What's our identity? And basically, while they're asking these questions, they're sitting ducks. They have no military training, and they're just sitting ducks. And the powerful, violent Amalekites, which have like probably chariots and different kinds of tech that the ancient Israelites didn't have, the Amalekites are like, let's seize this opportunity and get those sitting duck Israelites. And here's what happens. Verse, 17, verse 8 of chapter 17 of Exodus says, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I'll stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So any of you recognize the story now? Yeah, so th this is a very weird one because as long as Moses lifts his hands, the Israelites are winning the battle. But as, as soon as Moses' hands get tired, <laughs> they start losing the battle. It's like this weird, miraculous, I don't know what's going on in the story. It's weird. Just, just God. It's a God moment of some kind. And so he's getting tired and his hands are falling and so the people start losing. And so he gets two of his assistants to come and help him keep his hands up and they win. Very weird. Okay, I'll just say that. So, and then, and they win. Here's the moment. Here's the moment you're waiting for. You ready for it? The first mention of the writing of the Bible in the Bible. Here it is. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. <laughs> Done. Blink, you missed it. That's it. That, there it is. Happy birthday, Bible. Like, that's the beginning of the Bible. Um, what were you expecting? Is this underwhelming? Let me tell you, they were not underwhelmed. They were just rescued from slavery, had been through a parted ocean, and now won a victory over far more technologically advanced aggressors as non-military ex-slaves. This is a big deal to them. And, and, and somehow we imagine the Bible's birth as like golden tablets falling from the sky. And the Bible comes from the sky. Or maybe you, when you think of how the Bible was written, you've thought of it like God dictating through meat puppet humans who just do what God says. That's not it either. It is neither of those things. This is so fascinating. The Bible did not fall from the sky. It wasn't dictated through meat puppet humans. The first mention of the writing of the Bible seems very normal and very human even. And what was the purpose of this writing in Exodus 17? Why, are the, why did God say, write this down? What are they writing? It's the story of what just happened, the rescue. God's people were rescued by God, and, and it's this short little written record so they don't forget. That's why they write it down, so they remember that Yahweh is this God who uniquely protects. He protects, provides, and he redeems, he rescues. And who does he rescue? He rescues a family that says, God, help us. So you admit you need his help, and he comes and brings you into his family. This is who he is. And the first moment the Bible is mentioned as being written is this moment where his people go, help. And he says, I help. And then he says, now that I've helped, write it down. 
Why? So you can remember for the rest of your days, every generation, what I do and what I'm like. This is the birth of the Bible. So this is interesting. You have the slide. The first mention of the Bible's writing in the Bible is not this rule book falling from the clouds. It's a story. And this should shape what we think the Bible is fundamentally. It's telling the story of God's action through history to rescue. This is what the Bible is. And then we are going to come to the second the second mention of the Bible's writing in the Bible. Uh, it, this is super important. Does anyone have a hunch? Where's the second mention of the writing of the Bible? Anyone can shout out the chapter? So it's, it's, again, we don't often think of these verses. So it's okay if you don't know it. But it's super interesting. The, uh, so if the first mention is telling the story of God rescuing, what do you think the second mention is about? The same thing. This is what the same thing is. And this time they're parked at the foot of a mountain, Mount Sinai. And this time you, you kind of do get a mountain on fire effect at this time. So there's this, there's this mountain on fire. And right before the Bible is mentioned, you see this, right before. He says, you yourself, this is God talking. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings. That's protection. That's provision. You've seen it. And brought you to myself. God wants them to, to himself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So God is basically saying, the reason I rescued you is to bring you to myself. I want you. I like you. I desire you as my family. And I, and, and I want to enter into a covenant with you. That word covenant, we don't often use it, but it's really important. It's, it's, I think we use it more often than we do, think we do, uh, because it's a, it's, we step into these written agreements all the time. Uh, but a contract is different than a covenant. A contract is, hey, this is my stuff, and this is your stuff, and if we ever disagree or if we ever get mad, I get that, and you get this. That's a contract, and it can be done well, but a covenant is not, that's your stuff, that's my stuff. A covenant is, I am yours, and you are mine. It's relational, and so this is God. This is God. I want to be yours. You want to be mine. Step into this covenant with me. God rescued them to bring him to himself, near to his power and beauty and purity, so that they'd be changed. They'd become more like him as they encounter him. So this, this is the moment, right? Here we go. The moment the Bible is born, the Bible's origin story, and what we see is God is giving them the terms of the covenant, the terms. So, so the first, there's, there's first 10 terms of the covenant. You know, what you know what they are? Anyone know what the first 10 terms of the covenant are? The 10? Yeah, yeah. That's actually the first 10 lines of the covenant. And, and then there's 42 that follow the 10. And then there's a total of 613, which is like a lot to us. Uh, and at this point, some of you might be like, aha, I knew this was a rule book. I knew the rule book thing was coming. And uh, listen, no, 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 you're cutting the legs out from the story. Remember, it's a story. You're cutting the legs out. The laws of Moses aren't just arbitrary rules. They're the terms of a covenant. Israel is getting married at Mount Sinai right now. Israel's willingly stepping into this relationship with God 
who rescued them. And when God reveals the terms or the rules, they're in this context, I've been re- you've been rescued, and now you're invited into closeness with this God. For what purpose? Why does God want a people? He says it right there in Exodus 19. He says, if you obey the terms of this covenant, you will all become for me a kingdom of priests. You'll represent me to the world. I'll make you so much like me that when you turn toward the world with my power and personal presence, people will see me in you. That's what I want. You so near to me that you take me with you. That's what he wants. It's this relationship. And these are the terms. You guys, the whole point is, if God's people willingly come under the covenant in relationship, then God's going to form his people into a different kind of culture. A different culture than the rest of the world that's not in the covenant. Does that make sense? And in this marriage with God, God's people are going to adopt a whole new way of seeing God and seeing themselves. They'll be this beautiful family with a whole new way of seeing their money and how to do justice and how to see their sexuality and how to define what's good and evil. It'll all be totally overhauled through this divine gift of this covenant and the terms of the covenant that they willingly enter into. And God says if they're faithful to allow this covenant to reshape their shared life, then they're going to be his tool. You guys, we're his partners in his hands to go out and help reshape and renew all the nations of the world. That's the plan. That's the plan here. It's the best news. Remember Jesus prayed, our Father, may your kingdom come in San Diego as your covenant family lives in San Diego. That's his kingdom coming. He's reshaping the world around Jesus through us in relationship with him. And, and now, here we come. The actual moment, the story of the second mention of the writing of the Bible in the Bible. It's what Priscilla read at the beginning. Here it is, Exodus 24. So when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, so he told them what the Bible said, this new Bible thing that they just wrote, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do, they say, which is awesome. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord said. He got up early next morning, built an altar, set up stone pillars, Young Israelite men. And then look at this. They offered burnt offerings, sacrificed bulls. Next slide. And here's the rest. Moses took half the blood, put it in bowls. The other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the, ooh, it gets a name. This is the first time the Bible's named. And it's Book of the Covenant, or literally the Scrolls of the Covenant. That's pretty epic, I think. He took the Book of the Covenant, and he read it, and they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Three cheers, you know. They're, they're amped right now. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. You guys, there's so much happening here. We don't have the time to build out what's happening here and dig into it. But let's just, first of all, there's weird blood rituals here, like blood manipulation stuff happening that feels weird to us. If you're new to the whole Christian conversation, that, that happened. It's gross to us. To us, it's gross. Meaningful to them in their culture, deeply meaningful. And in the midst of it all, look what Moses does. He takes the book of the covenant 
And, and you could say these are the wedding vows, the written vows. And he, re- and he reads, and God's saying through it, here's what I will do for you. I've already done it, and I'm going to keep rescuing. I'm going to keep protecting. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to provide for your family. I'm going to bless you if, you if you, and then they say, if we, no, we will. And they respond, it's I do, I do. I will, I will. You see what's happening here. And Moses takes the blood, and he sprinkles it on the people, and he says, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Okay, so what do we make of all this? What do we make of all this? Uh, three, three closing observations, just three things as we end. Uh, the, number, first of all, these two mentions of the writing of the Bible in the Bible, they're nowhere near the picture of the Bible a lot of us have today. I want to observe this first. The Bible is not golden tablets from heaven. It's not God dictating through mindless people who went in a trance or whatever. And, and, and it's not a divine behavior manual telling you what to do and not to do in order to get to the good place and avoid the bad place. It's not what that is. I hope we're very clear on this. That's not fundamentally what the Bible is. Because when you read what it is, it tells us a very different kind of story. The Bible is fundamentally a story of what God is doing to save all people, to save for himself a family, ultimately the whole universe for himself. And then God graciously invites these saved people into a covenant relationship. And the terms of this covenant are entered into by people who are so overwhelmed by the mercy and grace of our great rescuer that we want to marry him. We're so overwhelmed by what he's done. And and it's like Peter. When Jesus said, Peter, are you going to leave me too? Are you going to leave this relationship too? When people were bailing on Jesus in John. And Peter's like, I mean, where else will I go? Only you have the words of eternal life. The words of God come to us through the scriptures. And only the word Jesus and the words from Jesus can save you. There's no salvation outside this covenant. And why wouldn't you want it? <laughs> why wouldn't you want full rescue, full welcome and belonging to a family of God? You just simply admit your need. My goodness. This, and this brings us to the second observation. Christians, by definition, are people who have willingly chosen to live under the terms of this covenant. I think that's important to be clear. Christians are people, by definition, who willingly choose to submit to the terms of the covenant. That's where the biblical authority thing comes. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's the same way someone does when they get married. Like, I got married to Sandy. The day I got married to Sandy, I stepped into a covenant. We stood on the altar in front of witnesses, and we spoke and created a covenant. And, and, and nobody was forcing me to do that at the moment. There was no, like, there was no, like, gun pointed at me so that I did that in the moment because she's incredible and beautiful and I willingly choose and keep choosing every day to submit to the terms of the covenant with her. And so from November 11th, 2000, it's 23 years this November, guys. So November 11th, 2000 and onward, this covenant relationship with Sandy, it, you know what it did? It started having direct bearing on everything in my world. 
like how much pizza I eat every week. That changed. How much video games I get to play changed. How, uh, the, the movies I watch, when I go hiking, who else I spend my time with and what I do with them, what I do with my money, what I do with my body, what I do with my time. My marriage covenant with Sandy, it completely overhauled everything about my life and it naturally did this. And I agreed to it willingly and continue to do so. This is the covenant, that's what covenant is. Now, am I successful to every term of the covenant that I said on that day? Of course not. Sometimes I fail, we work through it. Sometimes she fails, we work through it. Do you understand what's happening here? So the Bible is this covenant document. And, and it's something that when people realize a rescue has been provided for them, this covenant is something that God's children willingly receive and agree to enter into as our authority and guide. And it's not something anyone does with a gun to their head, right? This is something you do as a natural response to the one who showed grace to you. It's not, it's not accept the covenant or you die. It's where else do we go? Only with you are the words of life. Peter got it. Peter nailed, where else do I go? Only with Christ is the words of life. This is how the Bible presents itself to the world. This is the authority question. It's important to name this because we're so anti-authority today. And for good reason. There's a lot of abusers of authority. Reports of authority abuse in the workplace, in politics, in churches, especially horrific in churches. Church leaders abusing people spiritually and sexually. Authority abuse is everywhere. So it's understandable we're suspicious, as we should be. And we need to be able, we need to, be able to identify the right kind because then it's all the sweeter. The right kind of authority is all the sweeter. When you read how the Bible presents its authority to us, it's totally different than the way our, your coworkers might be talking about authority in the world today. And it's interesting. Remember how Israel shouts, everything you say we will do. They're pumped. If you know the story, Israel goes on to do what? To not do anything they said. It takes four or 500 years, but they literally break every category of law code that they were pumped on, okay? They break it all. And so Israel finds itself in a pile of ruin, carted off to exile in Babylon because they abandoned the covenant that they made with God. This is, and this, all of that is the story Jesus pointed to to tell us what he's all about. It was all about God making for himself a people who would partner with him to fill creation with his goodness and his beauty and love. And that's what Jesus came to bring, you guys. Jesus came to bring a renewed humanity, the family of God with hearts that beat along with the creator's heartbeat by the spirit inside of us. He gives us the spirit so that we can live in this covenant. And Jesus' mission was always to get to the heartbeat of the covenant. Jesus wasn't just on the surface of the laws. He wanted the heart. He wanted the heart. So for Jesus, it was never about animal sacrifice. All the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament weren't the ultimate point. It was never just about, well, can I get through life without murdering someone or sleeping with someone's spouse and then I'm a good human? No, Jesus told the legal Bible scholars of his day, congratulations, you haven't killed anyone and you think that makes you a good person? Jesus teaches us the fundamental issue in all of us is our mixed motives all the time. Our affections, our will, 
Because our values can become, our motives can become so distorted from what God intended them to be about, which was full-on self-sacrificial love of God and others. And so all of us are challenged right now. Every single one of us are challenged to our core by Jesus. Which brings us to the final observation, the third and final. This all leads us to look at what Jesus did. We see what Jesus did right? At the peak of Jesus's tension with his religious rulers of the day, you know, the the religious rulers in Jesus' day, they didn't like Jesus because they didn't like how he got to the heart of things. They didn't like his interpretation of the words uh, because he was getting right to the heart of everyone. Even the people that thought they were on top of the religious heap Jesus got to their hearts too. He's getting to everyone. And, and, so, and so at the peak of tension between Jesus and the religious leaders, Jesus marches into Jerusalem like he owns the place. And his timing lines up perfectly with the Passover. And the night before he's crucified, what story does Jesus tell? The story of rescue. The story Priscilla just read. He pulls his language right from the birth story of the Bible, the story of God creating a covenant. This is super intentional. Jesus is doing this on purpose. Look at it. Here it is from the last Passover meal. Jesus says, or John writes, Matthew rather, well, that was, Matthew writes, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, And when he gave thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. Ding, 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 ding. You should be, your lights on your dashboard are going up. Jesus is hyperlinking to the original story here on purpose. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Is this the family he's making? Is the birth story of the Bible the birth of a covenant that would birth a family through the blood of Jesus? Poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I'm not going to drink from the fruit of the vine from now until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, the kingdom of priests he's making us into. You guys, what, what is going on? Blood of the covenant. Jesus is saying, we're back at Mount Sinai right now. See this cup? We're back at the, we're back at the mountain. We're going to be back at Mount Sinai at the tables today. We have the bread. We have the cup. And he's telling his first disciples, these disciples that would go on and plant churches, he's telling them, and he's telling Park Hill today, God has rescued and formed a family for himself, a people. So that's who we are. We're a a family formed by God's own word and God's work of, of, of bloodshed of Jesus on the cross so that we can be forgiven and, and belong to one another. And, and we're part of a living, breathing expression of this millennia-old family. And, and what have, and we're no different. We're no different. What has God's family always been great at doing for thousands of years? Failing. We're no different. Don't think you're different. We have all been excellent at failing the terms of the covenant. Uh, all of us, following Jesus is so hard. And good news, 
He gives us his Holy Spirit to empower us in following him so that we can. And when we don't, he built in, he built in to the covenant this forgiveness clause for everyone who comes. Everyone who comes to this table, trusting that Jesus is the one whose words bring eternal life and no one else, everyone who comes receives full forgiveness. You agree with God that you fail to live up to his standard and you repent and admit your need of his forgiveness and healing and he comes in with more forgiveness than you know what to do with. And he covers all your flaws and failures because Jesus became the faithful covenant partner you and I were made to be but failed to be. So I like this sentence even though it's clunky. I like how it focuses. Jesus is the truly human one. Meaning, in Jesus, God became for us the faithful human that we were made to be but failed to be so that our flaws and failures can be covered and forgiven. Do you believe this? Come receive this glorious truth for your life and your inclusion in the family of God through Jesus alone. This is what's offered to you today. Jesus absorbed the evil we dished out at him at the cross and all his life. And all the selfishness and all the redefining of good and evil that we make, we disagreed with God on what's good and evil, and he's like, I'll die for that. We created hell on earth. He's like, I'll absorb hell on earth for you. And Jesus allows all our evil to crush him at the cross. And because God's love for you and God's love for the universe is so unbreakable, Jesus' resurrection from the dead was God's irreversible stamp that evil will not get the last word over all who trust him. And that's really what resurrection is all about. Resurrection is a worldwide invitation to every single human, despite your failure or your past, to respond to this God who rescues and join this family and learn what it means to be a fully flourishing human being like Jesus. So the way we do this, you guys, is through baptism. Next Sunday is Baptism Sunday. We're going to have a big tank of water right here. And anyone who wants to step into the covenant relationship where we're like, I belong to you, God, and God's like, I belong to you. And in front of all the witnesses, like a wedding, you stand up and say, I will. And then when you fail, you come to the table. You don't need to be baptized again. That's why we don't encourage rebaptisms in our church. You don't need to be baptized again. You don't have to. Why? Because the blood of the covenant has forgiveness for sin. The blood of the covenant, you come to the table and you drink the cup and eat the bread and you receive forgiveness and you renew your vows. That's what happens at the table and why you don't need to be baptized twice or thrice or four thrice or whatever. I just said thrice. It's like a band. Um, so come, be baptized next week. You guys, it's Baptism Sunday. It's your covenant creation day where you step into the covenant that's been created forever, but you create your, God has created a space for you to step in, accept. And so uh, uh, we're talking about authority. When, Evan, when I, Evan Wickham, say that I live under the authority of the Bible, what I'm saying is I live under the authority of Jesus joyfully. So Jesus' love expresses to me through the stories of these ancient scriptures and I happily come under the terms of the covenant, which are still really hard, and sometimes I'm not happy about it. But I do try to force myself. I practice them. 
I discipline, I disciple myself in community, receive discipleship to live in line with this covenant. Um, why? Why do I do that? Because this is what it means for us to rediscover our humanity through the love of Jesus. Thankfully, God gives us the power of his Holy Spirit to live this out together as a family. So sure, your coworkers and your barber might think you're weird for living under Jesus' authority mediated through ancient texts. But I always loved that conversation with people because I love to ask, yeah, totally, it feels weird, but whose authority would you want to live under? Your own? How's that working for you? We have the privilege to come under the authority of a person who has the experience and wisdom of what it means to be a flourishing human being, someone I want to be like, this Jesus, who's also God. We have the privilege of coming under the authority of this Jesus, and that means coming under the authority of his scriptures. And not just that, but he gives us his Holy Spirit so that we can live together this way. He doesn't just say, here's the book, figured out. He says, here's the books, and here's my personal presence to empower you as you trust in me and come to the table together as a family. And so uh, we're going to end here, and I want to just call three different groups. I think there's probably three groups in the room. Um, the question really that over all this, who wants, who wants to join the covenant family? <laughs> like, do you want to join? The door's open. Do you want to join the covenant family? Be part of this eternal community that worships Father, Son, and Spirit? Doors open. And so, so three groups. Number one, if you're not yet living in the faith, if you're not a Christian, or if you're on the fence, like, I don't know if I trust, I don't know what I think, you are invited into this covenant relationship with the living God. Step into the covenant through baptism next week. Tell us today, tell us today you're thinking about it. And, and I'm going to invite people for prayer today. Feel free to come to the whole front even today while we lead worship. And just, just come forward and someone will pray for you. If this is what you want, if you want to step into the covenant, just come forward and we'll pray for you. And, get, and meet you if you want to be met. And then the second group of people, those that are Christians but are struggling in the covenant. And this could be a lot of us at, at a lot of different times. Like you're struggling. You're like, I don't know what I think about I don't know what I think about obedience. I don't know what I think about money or sexuality or influence or my job. I don't really know if I believe like I used to. Listen, there is so much mercy and so much room for that here. And I want to say this. The kind, non-shaming invitation of the Holy Spirit is to ask yourself, is there anything in my life that isn't fully submitted to the authority of Scripture? Is there anything? Is there anything in, anything in your life that's not fully submitted? For those struggling with the covenant, with the faith, come forward for prayer. And then the third group, you guys, sometimes we talk about a lot about like people that are struggling, people that aren't Christians, come forward and there's like repentance. But there's a third group, probably a lot of you, who are thriving in the covenant today. 
You're just like loving your walk with Christ. And I, I want to say yes and amen. And I want to call you for receive the power of the Spirit today. So, like there's not repentance to be done, but there's a blessing to receive. It's a blessing for you to receive. Just the, the, uh, Romans 5.8 says the, fa- the Father pours his love out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. The Holy Spirit pours God's love in your heart. So whatever, I I just named three groups that could literally be all of us. So if you all came forward, it would be very crowded. So don't all come forward. But but you do come forward if if you sense the Spirit speaking to your heart in any of those ways. So can we stand together if you're able to? We'll finish by coming to the table in a few minutes. But first, come forward for prayer. If you want to say yes to the covenant relationship that God offers you, say yes, come forward. And if you're struggling, come submit to the authority of Scripture and remember what it means to be in the family and all of that, forgiven, accepted. And maybe you just need the power of the Spirit to live another week in thriving relationship with Jesus. Come forward. Heavenly Father, we pray right now that you would have your way in us. Give us... uh, Give us a, a sense of your presence that's undeniable. Please, God. Thank you for reminding us who you are and where we belong. I pray you'd have your way right now. Begin moving on hearts. No hype, no manipulation, just the, the, the still small voice of your Holy Spirit calling people into relationship with Jesus. We want to say yes to you with our whole self. In Jesus' name, amen. So anyone, feel free to come forward. We'll pray for you.